Hey, FFR listeners. If you love getting to listen in on our convos each week, consider helping us keep bringing our signature brand of feminist pop culture analysis to you by joining our Patreon community at patreon.com slash femfreak. You can get early access, exclusive bonus episodes, participate in AMAs, join our friendly Discord server, and more. That's patreon.com slash femfreak. See you there. Jimmy has what I think is like such a great kind of line there. You don't get to hate San Francisco. You don't get to hate it unless you love it. And I, I know just what he means, right? He is, he has every reason really to hate San Francisco, the city that kind of erases his humanity, his right to, to, to lay down. It's a city that broke his heart. Welcome to Feminist Frequency Radio. This is the show that asks you to be critical of the media you love. I'm Anita Sarkeesian, and I'm joined by two other people who also don't own homes in San Francisco. Carolyn Pettit. It's true. And Ebony Adams. I'm mad. In this week's episode, we're going to be talking about The Last Black Man in San Francisco, a poetic new film about identity, race, homeownership, and who really belongs in the city by the bay. Well, hello, fans and co-hosts. Hey. <laughs> Hello. How is everyone on this fine Saturday that we are recording this episode? Good. I, I yeah, I'm it's I'm good. I I'm it's kind of gloomy here in Berkeley today. So, gray skies outside my window. I mean, um, you should just go squat in a sunnier house. Uh, right. Oh yeah. I <laughs> Yes, that's how that works. <laughs> Don't forget to Change the utilities to your name, though. Yeah. That's crucial in the Totally process. crucial. <laughs> you know, the thing, a- about, the thing about SF, I mean, you're not in SF, but the thing about SF is that microclimates are fucking real, so you could literally yeah. just go to the mission and it'll probably be sunnier. Absolutely. No, that's absolutely true. Yes. But that would involve leaving your house, and yeah, as you know, I'm not a big fan. Not a fan. I, here at Feminist Frequency, we are not fans of leaving your home ever. <laughs> We're officially opposed to yeah. <laughs> one of our policies, one of our big, the big tenets of our organization, you know, being opposed to leaving the house. Yep. I was doing a job interview the other day and they were like, how do you feel about remote workplaces? And I was like, I fucking love them. <laughs> <laughs> and we were like, wow, okay. I was like, wait, I don't think I interview for jobs that aren't remote workplaces. I don't, I don't even know how that works. Did those exist? Right. Ugh. Anyways, yeah. what's up in uh, entertainment news this week? Well, boy, so this way it was tough actually, you know, picking a few stories to to talk about because there's been so much, you know, entertainment news since last time we did an entertainment news segment. But uh, I did just, you know, so if you don't hear the big story that, that you were hoping to hear, I apologize. I'm just one woman. I can only bring you so much entertainment news. <laughs> um, all right. So uh, first of all, um, first story I want to talk about is... Um, so uh, there's a, a famous, uh, you know, graphic novel uh, and series of graphic novels called Mouse, M-A-U-S, by Art Spiegelman, who, um, his, whose father was a Holocaust survivor. And, you know, Mouse is a, is a you know, a, a Pulitzer Prize winning, you know, just absolutely critically acclaimed, widely adored sort of graphic novel uh, uh, about, you know, the Holocaust. Um, I think the characters in it are mice, but you know, it's, it's nonetheless. Anyway, it's um, so Art Spiegelman was asked to write the intro was asked by Marvel uh, or one of Marvel's publishing, you know, divisions to write the introduction for an upcoming um, collection of, of golden age comics, which would include comics from the era, you know, uh, the era around world war two in which you have captain America, you know, fighting Nazis and, you know, fascists, you know, in the form of, you know, the character of Red Skull, who is like explicitly a fascist character. And so in, in his introduction, um, uh, uh, Spiegelman wrote um, this, uh, this section. And because of this section, uh, Marvel rejected the introduction. He, he wrote, um, um, Auschwitz and Hiroshima make more sense as dark comic book cataclysms than as ev- events in our real world. In today's all too real world, Captain America's most nefarious villain, the Red Skull, is alive on screen and an orange skull haunts America. Um, 
they Marvel wow. did not like the direct Trump comparison with Red Skull, the Orange Skull reference, and um, you know they uh, apparently Marvel says that they wish to remain apolitical, quote unquote, in their. You know, <laughs> a, I mean, you ask Art Spiegelman, you know, famous for writing about the Holocaust. To write your introduction to... You know what this feels like? This feels like somebody internally was like, fuck yeah, I see these parallels. This would be great. I like his work. And then the executives up at the top of Marvel and Disney saw it and was like, whoa, no way. Well, and specifically Isaac Perlmutter, right? Who is, he, is he still the CEO of Marvel uh, yeah, Entertainment so, um, and like a huge Trump fan? So, so he just changed this one thing and we'll use the essay. And Spiegelman was like, no, fuck you. I'm taking this whole essay and I'm going to offer it to The Guardian um, which did publish it, and uh, you know, but he f- he framed the essay in the Guardian by explaining what had happened. And so I'm reading now from a, a story on Vox.com about all this. Spiegelman ends his essay by noting that Ike Perlmutter, the current chair and former CEO of Marvel Entertainment, um, is a longtime Trump supporter. Um, so yeah, like. Um, uh, clearly, like that—that that seems like that's relevant. And you know, I mean, uh, whether Perlmutter the issue came from on high from Perlmutter himself or what what have you, like who knows? But like, we can't take that out of the equation when we look at uh, at this at this issue. Yeah, and you know what's what's really kind of upsetting is that it didn't have to even yeah come directly from like Perlmutter um, when. Companies, when people, when systems start policing themselves, um, that's the the real fear. Like the the issue is not just one lone billionaire making these decisions by fiat. It's when you know that that kind of censorship happens, and it's you know, as I say, like institutions kind of policing themselves because we we know intuitively that it's going to rock the boat. But like. I don't know how many times we have to have this conversation about Captain America specifically, <laughs> you know, like the notion that Captain America is supposed to be apolitical. Like, I, I don't know how that that works, how you even fix your face to to come up with that kind of rationale for presenting certain kinds of stories. Like the character was created in a political, like explicitly for yeah. a political milieu. Like that's the whole yeah, point of I, Captain I think, I think part of what it America. Is, I think a lot of people want to maintain the illusion the, that Hitler and the fa- the Nazis and the fascists of the past, you know, have no mm-hmm. connection whatsoever. Like right. they were bad. Like, of course we can talk about how they were bad. They were evil. Like, yes, Captain America mm-hmm. defeating them. Rah, rah, go America, liberty, freedom. But to make the connection to Trump, to suggest that Trump is in any way oppressive or fascist or any of those things, like that's where you're, that's where you're crossing the line, right? Like, no, 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 there's no relevance whatsoever to anything happening in America today. You know, that's. Don't look at the man behind the curtain. Yeah, exactly. Um, You know, let art's relevance stay dead in the past and don't make those direct connections to the world we're living in now. Um, oh my God! Uh, moving on to another story that I also want to want to touch on. <sighs> oh, this is so uh, all frustrating. It's so just deeply, deeply frustrating. So uh, it was announced um, recently uh, that Jay Z has basically has partnered with the NFL. Um, uh, the NFL has given Jay Z's entertainment company um, quote. I'm, I'm reading from a story by Jamel Hill for the Atlantic here, the great Jamel Hill, um, uh, has given Roke Nation, quote, significant power in choosing the performers for the league's signature events. Um, uh, and Roke Nation will also help augment the NFL's social justice initiatives by developing content and spaces where players can speak about the issues that concern them. What's so troubling about this, obviously, is that it's it's not meant to bring, say, the issues around Kaepernick to the forefront to address those, to confront those, to deal with those. It's meant to obscure, to alleviate those, to kind of put those out of people's minds. This is PR, but so the NFL can make it look like they're doing something, but without actually doing the thing that, you know, that, that they should be doing. Here's a great kind of uh, section from Jamel Hill's essay, um, this wasn't just another routine example of Jay-Z living out a lyric he'd rapped nearly 15 years ago. I'm not a businessman. I'm a business man. Instead, the rapper faced questions yesterday about why he chose to collaborate with the same league that he'd publicly criticized for its treatment of Colin Kaepernick. 
the quarterback who hasn't had an NFL job since taking a knee during the national anthem three years ago to protest police, police brutality and racial injustice. Um, this is the same Jay-Z who showed support for Kaepernick by wearing his jersey on Saturday Night Live on his mega hit song, Ape Shit. Jay-Z rapped the lyric, once I said no to the Super Bowl, you need me, I don't need you. Every night we in the end zone, tell the NFL we in stadiums too. But now, you know, it kind of seems like, oh, Jay-Z is getting his, like getting his benefit, his money. I mean, I'm sure this is a very profitable endeavor and not like really, you know, and just doing this PR, this bullshit PR stuff that looks good on the surface, but isn't really getting to the root of the, of the matter. I would um, like to um, do a, a very minor, well, actually here, Ape yeah. Shit was actually a song on the Carters album, which was Jay-Z and Beyonce uh, together. <laughs> <laughs> noted. Du- <laughs> du- du- duly noted. Anita with the crucial corrective. Um, I just, you know, <laughs> but, th- but with uh, this, I just, I feel like it is a pernicious myth that there are some systems that can be dismantled from the outside um, using like the kind of, you know, op- oppressive tools that created the system in the first place. Yeah. With apologies to the the queen, Audre Lorde, yeah. for mangling the quote, the, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. And so the notion that, like, Jay-Z is going to suddenly have a seat at the table, billionaire that he is, um, and that that will be um, enough to kind of enact the kind of policies that need to happen to create this sea change is laughable. Um, uh, yeah. And the notion that this is really anything about making money on kind of woke capitalism, I'm sorry, I just don't buy it. And I'm disappointed, which, you know, that's jokes on me, right? You know, for looking up to a billionaire for any kind of philosophical guidance, especially Jay-Z, like the dude's been, you know. I mean, already there's, there's certain things suspect, you yeah. know. But yeah, he seemed like he was going in, like he he periodically um, does cool shit yeah. for the community. Oh, so, you know, this is just disappointing. It is. And like, there's one example already of how this is like clearly not uh, like in the larger best interests of, of say, you know, players like Kaepernick or or really the the the, the issues of uh, at the heart of kind of all these conversations around the NFL. So uh, a player for the uh, Miami Dolphins, Kenny Stills, uh, you know, kind of criticized this. And after that, the Dolphins head coach, Brian Flores, played eight Jay-Z songs at practice. So like um, kind of it seems like he's kind of weaponizing like Jay-Z's music as a way of saying, you know, shut the fuck up and just like fall in line. Um, so yeah, it's not, it, it, I I don't know. This is not, not looking good. It's not looking good. Yeah. So if you had sworn allegiance to rock nation, it's time to perhaps immigrate. Um, and that's that on that. Let me do a real quick lightning round of other, uh, stories before we move on. Just, uh, gonna just rattle off a few things here. Uh, the rock got married. Um, Katie Holmes and Jamie Foxx broke up. Uh, uh, Matrix, the Matrix 4 is happening with Lana Wachowski, uh, Keanu Reeves, and Carrie Ann Moss all involved. And Ewan McGregor is returning to the role of Obi-Wan Kenobi uh, in a limited, you know, Obi-Wan series on Disney Disney's subscription service. I can't believe Keanu Reeves news got relegated to the lightning round. I, well, you know, oh, I mean, I, like manager. I said, I have to, I have to make, make tough choices sometimes, you know, I have to kill, <laughs> sometimes I have to kill my little Keanu faced puppies. Oh, all right, y'all. We will be right back with the main segment of the week. Hey, feminist frequency radio listeners. Why not join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash femfreak? Seriously, what are you waiting for? Welcome back. The last black man in San Francisco focuses on Jimmy Fales, a young man with a deep emotional connection to a particular house in the city's Fillmore district. When the home's white occupants move out, Jimmy and his best friend Montgomery begin squatting there. But despite their efforts to go through the proper channels and establish their claim to the house, it seems as if truly making it his own will always be out of reach for Jimmy. So this film was not at all what I expected it to be going in. I did not watch yeah. like trailers or I just all I heard was a lot of kind of critical acclaim and saw some images from it. And I was fascinated with it because I, I do live in the San Francisco Bay Area. I live in Berkeley. I don't live in San Francisco proper. Um, 
I expected this, and I knew it was sort of about ho- a home and things like that. I expected this to be a kind of concrete, plot-driven story about a black man like running up against the the white-dominated institutions of power that you know were preventing him from uh, you know from like owning owning a house and. That stuff is definitely there. It definitely is, but it's it's kind of woven into this. Uh, yes, as I said, you know, it's kind of woven into this what I would call kind of poetic uh, uh, film it, it, that mm-hmm. is is less like uh, kind of concrete plot heavy, you know, stuff, and more just about these characters and their lives. And ultimately, I, I found this film like deep like deeply deeply beautiful and moving um i will say like just to to kind of set the tone like it has an ending i i think is quite poignant and at the ending you know the end credits feature that song it's a it's a familiar song but it's a rendition made i think done just for this movie of um you know if you're going to san francisco and the like the voice of a man who sings it in this film and, and at the end credits is just it's so soulful and beautiful like mm-hmm. I I was walking up to to get coffee this morning from my coffee stand up the street and I started crying again like as I did last night it's like this film moved me in some way that I can't even quite articulate but it speaks to something in me some kind of like grief around San Francisco and what is home and like where do we belong and like all these things it's it's I don't know. I, I mean, obviously, I'm just grasping at things here initially, but I, I just found this film so, so beautiful. I did, too. So Anita and I watched this together at her lovely domicile, which is not in San Francisco, yesterday. And we <laughs> both noted um, that we wished we had seen it on the big screen. Um, the cinematography in this film is so deliberate and so brilliant it is it's it's really a stunning movie to watch I mean it like literally stunning there were moments where I just wanted um to kind of pause the the action such as it was and look at the um and look at the screen you know like take it in for for several seconds and I mean I I wrote down like several examples of this and one that I I hope we get into um the way that the lighting and the this the staging excuse me, of one particular scene and the way that it plays into um, how Montgomery like literally sees the guys who, you know, hang out across the street from his grandfather's house um, as, as people, as characters in a play. Right. And in fact, on IMDb, these, these actors are credited as the Greek chorus, the chorus which yeah. is something that, you know, I would not have picked up on at least at a conscious level um, while watching the film, but it makes an absolute sense. Although I would argue that Montgomery is himself a, a one man Greek chorus. Um, but, but this, this film, I, I cannot believe that it is the product of a first time director. So the director, Joe Talbot, this is his debut feature film. And, and, and I'm just, I'm blown away um, by what he has, what he has put together. It is definitely, it's one of those films that's, you know, I mean, I, I while I, uh, I think this film has its own distinctive, beautiful look, I was reminded at times of, of the work of, say, uh, like, uh, of, um, if, if, if Beale Street could talk in the sense of the yeah. paint, the kind of painterly compositions mm-hmm. of shots and the, the use of lighting and just that, w- you know, that way that, like, there are so many shots in this film that are just, like, Oh, like, wow, the lighting, the golden light was, streaming in through a window. I was also going to make the yeah. Beale Street comparison as well. Cause yeah. it, and, and I, you know, I don't want to lump in sort of like right. poetic movies about black folks as like a whole, but there was a, a really a similarity in the poetry of it and in the cinematography of it. Whereas, like, mm-hmm. y- you have, very intentional lighting of black characters yes. um, and, mm-hmm. and or not characters, but of, of black actors in a way that um, I think we are starting to reckon with in the, in the last, you know, several years of allowing and creating space and giving resources to black creators mm-hmm. um, to, to recognize that. Cause we've talked about this in the history of how film was made and designed for white people. Like film um, by, by, by film, you mean 
film itself the material on which on which movies are exactly. shot and like mm-hmm. the the history of photography yes. and all of that right yeah so how kodak graded coloration according to you know white skin right. and all of yeah, all of these things exactly there's a scene that ebony like mentioned that sticks in my mind it's not a scene it's just the lighting of it it's near the end where um jimmy and his dad are in the house together and they're sitting by a window and there's just these beautiful sunspots that are yeah. coming through the window on jimmy's dad's face and it's just like that that image is sort of seared in my brain of just like how beautiful and gorgeous this film was and it's such a wonderful evocation of the um, the the importance of details and um, and place um, and textures in the ultimate message of the film, or one of the messages of the film, being that it is many things that go into making up a life and a time and a place. So in that scene that you're referencing, Anita. You know, I'm thinking. I can see so clearly right now the the play of shadows on uh, Rob Morgan is the actor who plays Jimmy Senior. The the shadows um, play on his face, but also like the texture of his tie and the way that you know the um, the colors of his suit. Like you can absolutely see the kind of like dark plum colors and the mustard um, woven through it. And I think about the way that there are other shots in which um, and. Clearly, I don't. I'm not a director of photography, so I'm not talking about this using the language that reveals any kind of technical facility here. But the ways in which um, scenes will have kind of like hyper focus on a, a person in the foreground, but they're still, you know, maintaining focus on the. Um, <laughs> the detritus behind them. So, you know, photographs pinned to the wall or, you know, blankets, you know, um, that are hanging on curtains uh, as curtains or whatever. Like just all of it, just, it's a very, it's a movie that felt very tactile at the same time that it felt very dreamlike. Yeah. um, I thought that the, 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 the visual poetry was a very um, lovely way of, dealing with such institutional oppression. Like, it was a very personal film talking about, like, gentrification and institutional power in a space that, you know, a lot of people are really familiar with how sort of destructive the tech industry has been to San Francisco and the spirit of it and the cost to um, communities of color. And so it was an interesting way of demonstrating the humanity of that. Yeah. 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 I mean, just like a, as a quick roundup, um, the story centers around Jimmy and his best friend, Monty. Um, Jimmy is obsessed with this house um, and this beautiful Victorian house in the Fillmore district. Um, And as the, you know, movie kind of gets started, we learned that the house used to be in his family. They lost it for some reason. The longer we go, we learned that, um, you know, Jimmy actually, you know, once he has taken up kind of squatting residence in the house after the white owners have moved out, yells at a tour guide who was Jello Biafra (laughs) Um, that, you know, uh, that his grandfather actually built the house. And it's such a, I don't know if I can spoil it, spoilers, 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 that his grandfather did not actually build the house. It is a fantasy of fiction that Jimmy has told himself for so long, um, and I, I really want to talk about that for a minute, like what it means for him to believe not only that his father, this this singular black man, built this beautiful uh, he, house his gran- with he, his, his own his hands. Gran- his grandfather, I think. His it, grandfather, sorry, his grandfather. Yeah. Um, but that his grandfather specifically built this house because uh, when the Japanese residents— um, of San Francisco were forced into internment camps, he would not move into and take over their places. He built his own. Like, what a comment, right? You know, like, what a thing to build a fairy tale around in your life. Like, giving his grandfather that kind of heroism. And then t- to watch him sort of re become like, you know, reintroduced to the truth and that brutal, you know, play scene later in Ecolante. Yes, he did know already that his grandfather didn't build the house. It was something, it was a lie that he had told himself and he had been telling it for so long that he had come to believe it and come to like need to believe it. Um, I'm so, I'm really fascinated with the way that, um, like, uh, you know, 
this film is very aware of how white people and white, you know, institutions are at the center of, of, you know, the, the problems kind of plaguing Jimmy. And by extension, I think the black, you know, black people in San Francisco uh, Mm -hmm. more widely, but you know, like the, 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 the white owners of the house, you know, initially kind of display as a, as a displacing force, for Jimmy, you know, later, uh, they, Jimmy and Montgomery sort of try to deal with realtors and bankers who just like won't give them the, you know, the they they just can't get a leg up. They have no way of engaging in a system in that system to establish a legitimate claim to the house. And yet, like, I love the way that the that the white characters in this film play such kind of small transitory roles Mm -hmm. you know like the film does not focus on them at all it's like they are the ones with the power they are the ones established they have the the land the ground the institutional power the house etc um but the film focuses on the the displaced like the way Mm -hmm. you know jimmy and montgomery and uh, essentially live kind of in the margins but the film focuses entirely on them and only brings in kind of whiteness and white people when it sort of has to, because they are sort of momentarily entering into this story. Like I, um, you know, I, I, I think that that is such a, a, a fascinating and an effective decision. And I think that this film does so much to, um, to, sort of require us as viewers to do something that films don't often do, which is to reckon with and engage with the full humanity of the, of its black characters. Particularly, um, there's a character named uh, Kofi, who's one of the mm-hmm. uh, member of the, the chorus, as it's, as it's sort of called, not in the movie itself, but in, mm-hmm. you know, credits and things. You know, a group of, like, tough guys, you know, they, they definitely engage in a lot of um, very uh, masculine-coded shit-talking and, uh, you know, kind of homophobic, you know, garbage talk and shit. But, I mean, Kofi... Um, is a character who we, we see multiple dimensions of him, right? We see mm-hmm. him, we see the ways in which he's not just the one thing. He's not just that like kind of tough guy. Uh, you know, he may fall into those patterns in certain circumstances, but he, he has more depth and more range as a human being than that. And so, you know, after he is killed, um, the, uh, Montgomery, puts on a play. Montgomery is a playwright. Um, and he puts on a play and part of what he says during that play, and he's talking specifically about Kofi, but also about like all about all black people and, you know, all of us more broadly in some sense, he says, let us break the boxes. Let us give each other the courage to see beyond the stories we're born into. And he also says, people aren't one thing, you know, cause I, I think there's a certain segment of like white viewer who might come to this film who has been so trained by all the white supremacist entertainment that we just are absorb to, you know, look at a character like Kofi and kind of dismiss them to kind of say like, Oh, but you know, he chose that life or like Mm -hmm. whatever. And this film like just is so committed to like pushing back against that and saying like, no, like, you know, you don't get to reduce Kofi to, to, to like the one thing, um, you know, he, he was so much, he was so much more than that. Yeah. I, um, <clears throat> I think as you say, like the, the typical white viewer is probably much more familiar with the model of black masculinity represented by Kofi and the rest of the Greek chorus. That's the version that we typically get, whether it be from the news or whether it be through our media or other forms of pop culture. And so I really loved how this film through the character of Jimmy, um, Montgomery, um, Monty's grandfather, you know, other characters gave us these other versions and insisted upon the legitimacy and the primacy of these other versions of Black masculinity. But I also just want to shout out um, the actor whose name I'm blanking on, who played Monty. <clears throat> the way oh, that uh, Jonathan he conveyed, Majors. yes, oh. like the way he showed such active listening and observation in his performance, you see him quite literally practicing and performing and mimicking 
the behaviors of these other Black men that he sees and trying them on and recognizing them as the roles that they are, right? He doesn't reduce them to caricatures, but he absolutely, you know, exists to say, like, there's some there's some truth to an essence here that I want to get at. There's some authenticity I want to get at here. And so I will try on your manner of speech. I will try on the way that you move your body. But ultimately, this is just a performance. Um, and it's something that we come back to in the, the scene that I shouted out earlier, um, just like a visually stunning scene, a scene that takes place at night, and it's kind of a fight between those guys. And I remember thinking as the scene first started, wow, this this looks like play staging. Like this looks like it's taking place on a stage. And then literally right after that, Monty, you know, walks closer to the guys and starts directing them and saying, I need more. I need what you're doing right now. I, I need more of this. I need you to step forward. The blocking is not quite right. He is literally directing in that moment. He talks about Stanislavski, right? Like this is the way that he perceives and understands all of the world around him. This, 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 you know, grand performance that, you know, we have all decided to participate in. Yeah, I, I very much hope that this ends up being a kind of breakout performance for Jonathan Majors. Yeah. Uh, I, I just, I would love to see more of him on screen. He, whenever he was on screen in this film, like the way he, he just radiates simultaneously so much like just present, like intelligence and depth of feeling and presence. It's like, I don't know. I just felt like, gosh, if I were in the room with this, character like Montgomery, like I would just, I don't know. Like, I just felt like, wow, this is somebody like, I felt like I knew him in some way and understood him. And I'm like, wow, this is somebody I'd feel safe with. Like I'd, I'd, yeah. I'd be willing to like engage with and open up to like, you know, it just, just somehow just, even when he's not saying anything, he's when he's just there in a, in a, in a room, in a place, he is exuding these qualities. Uh, I, I, I thought it was a really remarkable uh, and wonderful performance. It really was. And at the end, when he sees the note that Jimmy has left for him, I didn't know how to say goodbye, but thank you for being my best friend. I was just heartbroken. Um, and then to watch them sort of go their separate ways, Jimmy in that boat crossing the bay, uh, Monty at the the fish market where he works. I just thought, I God, I have fallen in love with both of these characters. And I see Monty and I truly believe like how deeply he feels things. Oh my God, just that moment just wrecked me. You know, that acknowledgement from Jimmy that thank you for being my best friend, knowing what Monty has meant to him, having his his presence and his love and his life. Oh my God, so good. When you were talking about the different, like, white like white institutional power being a very small piece of this movie, I was also thinking, that got me thinking about, like, the roles of sort of individuals who don't hold the, who don't hold that kind of institutional power but are still playing a role in the gentrification of San Francisco. And you have this scene on the bus uh, where you have those two women who are like, you know, not visibly. I thought you were going to talk about the, the people, I will. like I'll the hippies with the dreads. Oh, Hold okay, on. Sorry. There's a scene with these two women who aren't like very visibly like tech bros um, and who, you know, might be a little more artsy uh, talking about how they hate San Francisco and let's move to East LA. <laughs> oh, God. And I was like, oh, shit. I feel a little attacked right now. <laughs> I, 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 but, Jimmy overhears them saying that, you know, and, and kind of their contempt, they're kind of like slightly above it all contempt for San Francisco. Yeah. Like, and Jimmy has what I think is like such a great kind of line there. You know, he says, you don't get to hate San Francisco. You don't get to hate it unless you love it. And I, I know just what he means, right? He mm -hmm. is, he has every reason really to hate San Francisco, the city that kind of erases his, Humanity, his right to 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 lay well, it's down. It's a city roots that broke his heart. Sorry, it's a city that broke his heart. Yeah, it's a city that yeah. it's a city that, that broke his heart. But and it's like it's like you know he hates it because he loves it. It's like yeah. if he didn't care about San Francisco, it wouldn't mean anything to him. But you know the 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 hate, the frustration, the anger that he might have, it comes out of 
his like desire to exist there to to feel like he he has of that place that home that house like where it's his and he belongs there um part of the reason i bring it up is because i think in they the movie does a really good job of just sort of alluding to these different caricatures of people in the city and what the city has become right so like you know even those two women one of them's like oh muni as if like you know, I mean, and it's it is, can be a very unpleasant experience to ride public transportation, uh, especially in the Bay Area. But like that sort of dismissal of this, you know, like kind of like, oh, you're just like a, a and I'm using crazy specifically here, but like <clears throat> crazy black man getting in our like, you know, getting up in our business kind of thing. Um, and then there's a scene <laughs> which was hilarious but also horrible where you have like this this man who's naked and he sits on the the muni bench waiting for the bus and you're like yeah that shit happens in sf right like like it's if you live there you know you see all of the stuff that happens in terms of trying to drive out all of the artists all of the activists well not trying to but that was the result of of what had been happening and like every now and again you're like this city is still fucking weird and like the weirdos yeah. are still here like i remember a couple years ago i saw someone walking down the street with a chicken in a stroller like so <laughs> <laughs> like it's just you can't Don't take the weird out, out of like it that, completely Right. And so like that guy sitting there naked, I was like, that is that I, to me is a little bit of what they were trying to draw out of of that interaction. And then seeing this bus full of tech bros who are just like fucking partying and he, and um, also the music in this in this movie is very intentional and very well done. But they're partying and they start yelling at this guy because he's naked and they're yelling something like, this guy fucks. fucks yep. yeah. And then they all start chanting it. And I was like, I have literally seen those people. Like, I've seen those people in SF. And so the the combination of those different little vignettes of, like, these different types of archetypes that have taken over or that are being erased or whatever in San Francisco, I thought was really um, it resonated for me. Um, and then the other thing I, I sort of what we started this conversation on is that, um, and, and related to when we talked about Tarantino's movie, like one of the only things I liked about it was just like the, the shots of Hollywood, the beauty of San Francisco. It is a gorgeous city. You've got the shots of Bernal. You've got the shots of like going up, um, like that street in the, one of the streets in the mission where Bernal Heights is in the background, all of the gorgeous architecture, the bay, the bridge, both, both bridges, um, really just like deeply hit me because as much as I hate San Francisco, it's a gorgeous, beautiful city that I wish was filled with different people. That was a really beautiful encasing and reminder of, of why people flock to this place. I loved the the way um, this film was able to capture like the moments of like true authentic community. Um, so that scene that you referenced with, with the nudist at the bus shelter. First of all, the fact that he laid down like a little <laughs> towel on the seat, I died. Um, but like this is a, a white dude. But I love how the film, without belaboring the point, you know, to say like, ah, not all white people. But like, if you are not rich and you're weird and not in a socially acceptable way, San Francisco, and it currently exists, will squeeze you out as well. So when those tech bros start yelling from that trolley, it becomes something that's like irritating and annoying to start with. But for me anyway, rapidly became incredibly uncomfortable and scary. I mean, the notion of like, I mean, it was a, you know, kind of, you know, multicultural dude bro wank fest on that trolley, but mostly like 20 something year old white dudes just like loudly chanting at you. You know, from across the street, like I, I would probably get up and walk. Yeah, you know. Um, but then also the the um, the homeless man that Jimmy encounters when we first meet his father, his father, um, and the guy is singing opera, and Jimmy is standing and actually like listening to him. He's not just you know doing the thing where you walk really quickly by someone and pretend as if you don't see them or don't hear them, but he's actually engaging with the man and then speaks to him. Hey, you know, like. You're a human. I acknowledge your existence. You know, we are, you know, the same. Like, can I, can you watch my board for me for a minute? 
you know? Um, so like these, and then uh, the the third one, the candy woman, the candy selling woman who's oh got my that line in her house. People <laughs> trying to buy that like bulk discount candy and stuff. Like, yeah, these kind of like micro economies, these real like authentic neighborhood communities that happen completely, you know, undercover, you know, unacknowledged by the kind of false community represented by like, I don't know, the the block party kind of shit that that happens in the more upwardly mobile areas where, you know, you may nod at your neighbors, but you don't really know who they are. And, you know, you close your doors and their lives don't affect you. Um, you know, like this, this film shows us the way that San Francisco, like the kind of real pulsing, beating, messy, stinking heart of it. We will be right back with our weekly freakouts. Hey, Feminist Frequency Radio listeners. We'd love to have you join our Patreon community. Hop on over to patreon.com slash femfreak. Do it now! Now, it's time to talk about what's been thrilling us, moving us, upsetting us, or infuriating us this past week. Who would like to go first? I'll kick things off. Uh, um, oh, cool. Okay. I... <coughs> I am freaking out about a game um, uh, called Eliza. It's what's commonly referred to as a visual novel um, of a game. Um, it's on Steam. It's $14.99. And um, Eliza has a fascinating premise. It is about a service, a kind of therapy service, um, run by a, by a giant corporation in which uh, the way the Eliza service works is, you know, say you want a therapist or something, right? You just, you need somebody to talk to, you're having problems, but you can't like really afford most therapists. What? It, so you go to Eliza, um, the Eliza like buildings, their offices. And, and what you, what happens is you go in and you sit in a room with another human being Okay, so you're like like you're at a therapist. You're looking at somebody, you're talking to somebody, but that person is just a surrogate for Eliza. Eliza is an AI therapy system. And so the surrogate's job is not to, you know, respond to you themselves, to think, you know, to think, to have reactions to what you're saying. It is just like they have a little headset on, and Eliza, the AI tells them exactly what to say, right? So you go in and you're like, man, I'm having such a rough time at, at work last week, you know, oh God, just this happened and that happened. And then the surrogate, like Eliza, the AI, and tells the, tells the surrogate like, um, you know, I'm really sorry to hear that, David. Tell me more about such and such. And the human surrogate says that word for word. Um, and I mean, that's just the, that's just the basic premise. Um, it's, it's, um, this is, it's very much a story with, um, your character. The, the, the main character, um, is a woman who many years ago worked on de designing Eliza, the early stages of it. Then, uh, something happened, dun, 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 which I won't get into, but she walked away mm -hmm. from the project She's been li living this kind of aimless life for a while. And now she's like coming back and she's like curious to see what, what is the corporation doing with Eliza with this thing that I helped kind of create in the early stages. And so she goes to work herself as a surrogate. So you, the player, are in that role of just parroting for your patients what Eliza the AI tells you. And it's a fascinating premise. And this story gets into all kinds of really interesting and relevant concerns about like, corporations and tech and like the role of tech and the role of algorithms and AI and like, where is this all going? And like, you know, where is the place for humanity in all of this? It's um, uh, just, a, you know, I think a really, a really fascinating thought provoking uh, uh, work. It's got great voice acting, you know, really strong writing. Um, and yeah, so I, I definitely recommend if that, if any of that sounds interesting to you, the listener, um, I recommend checking out Eliza. Awesome. Ebony, what are you freaking out about? I'm <clears throat> freaking out about a film, a documentary called One Child Nation by the director Nanfu Wang. Um, I, I don't know. I suspect this is one of those things where if you're not in, you know, New York, San Francisco, or LA, you're just going to have to wait until it's available to stream. So I, I apologize for that. But once it is available, 
please do yourself a favor and check it out. But make sure that you're in like an amazing mood when you start, because by the time you get into it, you're going to feel like, what is the point of life? So (laughs) this film is, uh, as I said, directed by Nanfu Wang, who's a female filmmaker who um, uh, is Chinese, immigrated to the U.S., and it is about the kind of cultural and social and emotional consequences of China's one-child policy, whereby um, for generations, uh, Chinese families were allowed to have just one child. Uh, If you were from a rural family, you could petition to have two children. They had to be at least five years apart. This is something that I knew of um, as a child of the 80s. I remember this being something that was kind of like just a, a vague factoid um, that would occasionally be referenced in news stories, you know, like Peter Jennings would talk about it on the evening news or whatever. But I really, you know, had, you know, a child kind of conception of what that meant. I thought that it was kind of voluntary. Um, I also thought that, you know, given, um, you know, given the chance anyone would want to have <laughs> more children and, you know, like the people were constantly fighting against this. And I, I, so I just, I didn't realize the like the ramifications and the depth of it, but also the kind of like social um, and like physical realities that led to the government instituting what was just like a, a horrific solution to like widespread literal starvation. Um, this film is just heartbreaking. Um, The filmmaker talks to people, you know, in her own family who still live in China. Um, She talks to people who were involved in kind of a, you know, um, black market baby trade, um, whereby they would take children who had been given up and uh, these children would be adopted uh, outside of the country. Um, But with no way of tracking like their their real families if they wanted to back home. There's just this entire lost generation of people. Um, but the oh my God, it was it's it's brutal. You have these people talk about how they literally could not afford to feed their children and how government um punishment for having more than one child was so severe. That if folks had like, you know, this this second child, <clears throat> they would leave the baby for someone to take. So you have more than one person telling stories about how I, you know, I, I had my daughter and I couldn't keep her. And so I just left her in the market and I went by every day to see if someone took the baby, but no one ever did. And eventually she just starved to death in the oh market. Oh, my God. It is absolutely. It is. <sighs> So hard. Um, the director has talked about the difficulties recording. Um, as you can imagine, this is not a story that perhaps government, Chinese government officials are, you know, eager to have told in this way. It is very indicting. Um, and so she talks about like the very security measures that she had to, um, to uphold to, to be able to film there, she and her co-director. Um, but yeah, I just, it is incredibly illuminating. It is heartbreaking. Um, fascinating, just a really amazing piece of filmmaking. And I hope people see it. So One Child Nation by Nanfu Wang. Nice. Um, my freak out is I just want to read uh, two short quotes that I found in a, in an introduction by, well, so it's in the Best American Short Stories of 2018. It's the introduction that Roxane Gay wrote as the editor of that <clears throat> issue or that year's collection. Um, and it really, I think it will resonate with um, with you as well because it resonated with me in terms of how much I love reading fiction um, mm. and how like I prioritize that a lot in my life. And, um, and with this time of great, <laughs> uh, horrible, depressing public life, um, that fiction is really powerful for us in these times. So she writes in times of great personal or public upheaval, I turn to reading, I turn to fiction and how writers imagine the world as it is, was, or could be. I'm not avoiding reality. When I read fiction, I'm strengthening my ability to cope with reality. I'm allowing myself a much needed buffer, a place of stillness and quiet. I read fiction to step away from the cacophony of the news and social media and the opinions of others. The reprieve fiction provides is a necessary grace. Um, 
I know it's beautiful. She's an amazing writer. And then there mm-hmm. is one more quote um, that I thought was really interesting in terms of kind of how she picked the stories in this book as well. When I'm reading fiction, I'm not always looking for the political. First and foremost, I'm looking for a good story. I'm looking for beautifully crafted sentences. I'm looking for a refreshing voice or perspective. I'm looking for interesting, complex characters that I find myself thinking about even when I'm done with the story. I'm looking for the artful way any given story is conveyed, but I also love when a story has a powerful message, when a story teaches me something about the world, when a story shows me just how much I don't know and need to know about the lives of others. And I really loved that. And I think that that, you know, as we've been talking about, you know, for a couple of weeks, we've talked about like sort of slower paced films and and how, you know, I think Ebony and I's threshold for those has to do with who is the person we're following and what their background is. Um, or their identity markers are, for example, and whose stories aren't being told and and who gets to take up that time. Um, So anyways, those quotes really stuck out to me in terms of um, how I look for media and what I look for in media. I love that. Yeah. All right. Well, if you would like to have a freak out, if you're freaking out and want (laughs) to share your freak out, because I'm sure you're freaking out because there's so much to freak out about. Submit your own at feministfrequency.com slash freakout. That's F-R-E-Q-O-U-T. Thanks so much for listening to Feminist Frequency Radio. Stay tuned for the freaking after party, only available to backers of this podcast. You can learn more at patreon.com slash femfreak. You can find us everywhere great podcasts are found. If you haven't yet, go to iTunes and subscribe, rate, and review us. We're also on Spotify and Stitcher and all of the other things, because they're all on all the things. (laughs) (laughs) You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and all the social medias at FemFreak. The show is engineered by Rob Perra. Sarah Norales provides technical support, artwork by Jamie Varon, and our intro music is by Phil Circus. Join us next week for another feminist dive into popular culture. Thanks for listening. Bye. Later.